My name is Jafar Iqbal, and this is Critically Speaking, difficult conversations about the arts and culture in Wales. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of episode 7, I just need to do some quick admin. Compared to the rest of this season, this episode's sound quality is really poor. The short explanation is that I don't really know what happened, it's very annoying, and it'll hopefully not happen again. The slightly longer explanation is that this is a very small operation with very limited resources, and sometimes things don't always go as you hoped. I spent quite a bit of time wondering if I should release this episode or not, and ultimately decided that I would. The reason being that this was a very interesting conversation that needed to be out there. The episode was recorded back in the summer of 2019, and it was actually the first time I'd met my guest Maria Zaman face to face. It's impossible to know how conversations like this are going to go, especially when it's with someone you don't know, but Maria's candid and matter-of-fact demeanour made it a joy to record. Maria is passionate about her faith and her work, which really shines through in this chat. Having been brought up in a Muslim family myself, a lot of what she spoke about resonated with me personally, but her musings on identity and politics are something we can all relate to. So let's get on with it. Welcome to episode 7 of Critically Speaking. I'm actually trying to consciously post less. I feel like I post too much on Instagram, but I use Instagram as a tool to express myself. Instagram's my favourite. It's like the creative platform, and the creative side is what I'm exploring at the moment because I feel like I haven't totally explored that side in terms of sharing. Because there's one thing, producing whatever you want at home yeah. and on the side, but then sharing that is, you have this totally different story. Why, though? Is that a fear of sharing, or you just haven't done it yet? Because I've obviously, been doing, doing creative writing, writing creative writing, and you learn to just give your work away. Yeah, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with that. And it's partly why the only place that I'm comfortable putting out creative writing regularly is in an Instagram caption. I feel very vulnerable putting out creative writing unless there's something hardcore to it because I feel like the persona that I have, especially like being a community activist and stuff, it's like creative writing is like soft. This is very controversial, but creative writing to me in my head is my inner voice is saying to me, this is like your soft side and then your activist side is like your hardcore, like equal rights, blah, blah, blah side. Do the two not meet? And then the only time I put content out to do with creative writing is when they do meet. Okay. So for example, when I write poetry or spoken, spoken word, a lot of people say that you don't have to only write about issues to do with minorities, right? Because we're more than that as minorities. But in my head, I'm like, the activist comes out of me and I'm like, well, no, because if there's anyone better to convey issues about minorities, then it's the minorities, me, hi. Does that mean you do write about stuff that isn't related to minorities? Though? I do, I do. And when I, but I don't feel like it's as worthy in a way. I don't feel like it's as impactful why would anyone care about my cat? Why would anyone... People care about cats. Well, I know they care about cats, but I just... I they probably feel... care about cats more than they care about minorities. Yeah, probably do. And that's, you know, unfortunately... Which is part of the problem. That is part of the problem. I don't know. I feel like I'm still exploring more ways to express myself. And obviously, I'm still learning that the little things in life people do care about. For example, like going back to a community activist thing. I've been doing work here and there in anti-racism, anti-Islamophobia areas and I noticed the way that I approach politics in itself is very different to a lot of my peers in the sense that I'm not as hardline black and white as a lot of people in politics are like 
even though as much as you don't want to, empathizing with the other side is so essential. Before anyone gained power in any part of the world, the first thing they do did was understand the people. I think that's kind of what I'm trying to do creatively, is approach politics creatively. So you're quite a political person? Though. I am. I think innately I am. It's probably political with a small p though, no, not in the sense that I support this party, I support that party. Like There are parties that I line with more. Definitely, 100%. Throw that out. <laughs> <laughs> let's just make that clear. Like, let's just, yeah. make that clear. Yeah. But I like to... So this is what I'm kind of trying to define at the moment. But what I've always done is by trying to appeal to as many people as I can. That's why knowing your audiences and the way that you navigate your social media is so important. It's really important to know who you're talking to. Because if you know who you're talking to, then you know what you can empathise with. You can know what you can relate to in the other person. But saying that not to change your principles based on who you're talking to. Well, I was going to say, like, you if know, you're adapting for your audience, yes. how much of you is left in what you're writing? Yeah. That's a very interesting question because that's something I've had to be very wary of because there's one sense adapting to the extent where you're totally losing your own voice and your own message and your own principles. Especially, like, everything I do is, like, for the sake of God. So I think all of that feeds directly into what I do and how I do it. I'm personally not the type of person that prefers slandering people online because they had a different opinion to me or whatever. I just, I'm not a confrontational person. And if you're someone that's political, that can be kind of a problem. Would you respond to somebody who said something that you felt was wrong? If it was someone who I think would be willing to listen, yeah, probably. I see a lot of posts and I see a lot of people commenting and then people replying to the comments and fighting in the comment section. All you need to do is read those sections to realise that unless that person isn't willing to listen, which 80% of the time they aren't, then there's no point in engaging because it's just screen to screen at the end of the day. That's really important to remember because you need to know where you put your energy because it's tasking work. Like I've been in community work since 14, 15 properly and I'm still learning, navigating my way around the political sphere and the activist sphere, but I've kind of taken a step back because... I realised that it was painting me as a person in the sense that I was becoming more angry and I was becoming more like... It's heavy stuff, especially when you have politicians who are talking about you in ways that would is inherently racist, but they just don't want to put the word to it. And if people are saying the word racism is overused, no, it's just more prevalent and it's just more open. I think if you're someone that isn't political, then you're someone that's very privileged because it means that you have no reason to fight for anything. And I feel like even the richest person in the world, I'm going to say this, the whitest person in the world, (laughs) the richest, you know, the most male person in the world, even if you're sitting at the top of the pyramid and you have nothing to fight for, then I feel like you really need to look at your life and you need to evaluate who you should be platforming if you don't feel like there's anything in your life to fight for. As much as I don't like delving that much into political pettiness, which I see a lot, I feel like I don't have a choice when it comes being political or taking a political side or an activist side or a radical side to whatever but it's kind of fun anyway especially if you're creative you want to stir up a bit of discussion because you want your work to be heard you put a lot of work into your work so yeah i think where does the activism come from the thing is i don't have like an emotional backstory that's a shame you know i don't have i don't have like an emotional backstory i'm like every other minority kid my mum talked like you would tell me she was like oh well you know on my way to school I'd be called hacky. It's sad as it is. It's not like a big deal. Like it's something that happened to so many people. And despite the fact that she didn't look particularly dark, 
because my mum, she has a very dark skin, but she just looked different. And that's all it took for her to have racial slurs thrown at her. That was here in Wales? Yeah, yeah. So my mum was brought up in Butte Town. Even at the time, there was like all girls schools and things like that. But I don't have that, but I do have... So I, I started wearing a hijab when I was 16. That's when I had to make sure I was equipped to deal with judgment, to deal with everything that someone that wears the hijab gets. And that is questioning and like a microphone that you weren't born to realise have a spotlight on you. I wore it solely to better my relationship with God and solely for the purpose of my faith. So when I walk into school and I get asked questions that I didn't even knew could be asked, I'm the type of person that doesn't like feeling like I'm caught out. If somebody asks me a question, I try to do everything I can to answer it in the best way that I can. But because it was such a personal choice, like my parents didn't even know I was, I was grew on. Okay, so it wasn't something that you talked to your parents about? No, okay. I literally, I bought a headscarf and then on my first day of year, year 11, I remember this very clearly, I was texting my friends, I was like, oh my god, this is going to be so awkward. And I was like, so I did the whole walk to school and I was like, my head down, I didn't want to see anyone that I knew. And I'm like, I'm telling my friend, like, wait for me outside form, like, I don't want to go in on my own. And she waited outside and then the class was full because I was the last one in. And so I walk in, everyone's heads turned, they were like, who is that? And they were like, it was crazy. It was like, when you're visibly Muslim, I feel like, especially in when I was younger and post 9-11, you'll feel like you're suddenly accountable for everything. That was a big driver in the reason why I felt like I had to educate myself. Because I started to doubt myself and I was like, if I can't answer these questions, like, does that make me a good Muslim, you know? That was why I suddenly became a bit more political, a bit more, like, activist-y. And I see the y- young kids of today, and they follow meme pages on Instagram, but often here and there, particularly meme pages that have, like, Muslim memes or, like, Asian memes, all those memes, you'll see stuff about Jeremy Corbyn on there or stuff about the fact that Boris Johnson's just become the Prime Minister. Like, And that's on meme pages. And my younger sister and all my cousins who are about 13, 14... They're growing up in this time where talking about politics, even if it's through a meme or whatever, is totally normal. And I remember when I was in school, they were trying so hard to get kids interested about politics. Like a lot of kids would be like, oh, politics is boring. But now you don't hear kids saying that as much. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, Jezza. He was at Glastonbury. Oh, Stormzy, he was talking about this. About it's so normal and it says so much about the society we're living in today. Things that used to be controversial aren't controversial anymore. If you're someone who is in a marginalised community or in a minority community or whatever, you're no longer becoming a minority in the sense that you're being talked about a lot. You're being talked about a lot but you're not, you're not talking for yourself and I feel like that's probably why I just feel like you can't escape it. You don't need an emotional backstory anymore to just be like, yo, I'm really activist about X, Y and Z. I feel like my religion teaches me that you need to care for others and you need to... Justice is such a big deal in my values and I think that kind of motivates me. I feel like recognising the position that you're in. Like being born in the UK, having access to free education, water, food, a roof over your head, going to uni, all this stuff adds up and a lot of people, they don't have that. And I think just recognising that should make you political in the sense that well, I have all of this and a lot of people don't, so what can I do with my, you know, with my good Wi-Fi, my social media to amplify changes? What came first, the strong attachment to Islam or the strong attachment to politics, or was it together? Oh, 100% my attachment to Islam. So 13, 14, 15, 16, those were the years where my religion was meaning more to me. And then when it came to the pinnacle, which was when 
I became visibly Muslim when you no longer, it's not just like a thing that you do at home, where it's like a thing that you have to talk about and answer people on. You need the foundation, which is your religion, to be able to address questions. But I think I never became more religious because of other people, because I had to answer other people. I became more religious because that was growing up who I was as a person. And as a young person, you always question your religion, even if you're born with it, even if your family practice it, whatever, you're always questioning it. And I asked a lot of questions and I still ask a lot of questions. And I think it's really important if you're developing as a person in any sense, whether you're religious or not, asking a lot of questions is so important. So I asked a lot of questions and I made sure that I surrounded myself with people who were on the similar path of trying to be better Muslims. I feel like politics is so secondary to your values and your faith. Islam kind of drives everything that I do to this day, 100%. If my Islam is weak, then parts of myself become weaker because it's literally ingrained in who I am as a person. Is the activism that you do also related to Islam as well? So most of the work that I do is anti-Islamophobia work, raising awareness that Islamophobia is a thing, firstly, and educating people on how to tackle it, how to address it. It's always been a problem, but it's becoming a massive problem and people are trying to brush it under the carpet. I don't think that's right because Muslim women are affected the most when it comes to Islamophobia because we're visible, we're vulnerable, quote unquote. Why do you think it's more prevalent now? Islamophobia? Is it because people know the word now? Or is it because do you, do you think there has been an increase in it? Incidences that happen, for example, 9-11, London bombings, what happened with the Lee Rigby case. Brexit actually was a big one as well. Research has shown that there's been spikes of Islamophobia by 200%. It's literally shown statistically that there's always a rise when something happens, a terrorist attack happens, and it's always to do with the press coverage of that attack. I was in like a workshop the other day and they said that when you search the word Muslims, or when you search the words like we kill all Muslims, we want to kill all Muslims or something, there's like a hit of two million articles, all with the words kill all Muslims. And it is normal, it's just normal to hate on Muslims. You mentioned that you, you don't have an emotional backstory, but have you experienced racism, Islamophobia? Only until educating myself about what actually Islamophobia is, because Islamophobia isn't just a call out on the street. It's something that is sometimes very internalised. When I actually learned about what Islamophobia was after later in my years, I realised that when I started wearing the hijab at school, a lot of the questions that were being asked to me were very innately Islamophobic. When I started wearing the hijab, it was like race and religion visible. Before I started wearing the hijab, it was race. If you don't question or have dialogue from a very early age, then that can stem into something so much worse when you're older. Well, it's interesting because you were at primary school, high school, and then like university. What was your experience of young people there? It's just interesting because I feel like it varies university to university. University to me and students' unions to me are very political spaces, and I didn't find that my own People were shocked at the turnout at my events in Black History Month. As, as in there was a big turnout? Yes. Because they didn't think that there was a demand for these events. They didn't think that it was a problem. They didn't think that recognition for our black students was something that needed to be done because everything was sound, right? But then when you shake it up with the campaign that everyone's involved in, honestly, they were surprised that I had the turnout that I did. And the black people at my events were surprised at the white turnout. I had the screening. Do you know the movie Hidden Figures? So I had the screening and I did it in collaboration with Christian Union at my university. Then I did a Q&A after, which is probably the most interesting part of that whole event. 
everyone went through the same experience. They all watched the same film. And then I posed the question. So in the film, there was a lot of examples of colour segregation, like coloured toilets and coloured workspaces, etc., etc. And I asked the question, do you think racism has improved? Straight away, you had a white person put their hand up and say, yeah, man, like, we don't have that stuff anymore. We don't have... You know, we don't have coloured toilets and all that thing like, oh my gosh, things have, things have become so much better. And then you had a black woman who put her hand up saying, things are exactly the same as what you see in that film, but they've become structural and you, they've become organisational. She was very fierce, like, you know, she was like, I experienced racism to a level that you see happening in that film. And everyone was like shocked, like, whoa, racism is still a thing, like, like it was crazy. And I was like, I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, we don't see, we don't see the sign coloured anywhere. Like, but that's not the point, you know. Then one black guy said, "Do you know what? I'm actually surprised, but I'm so glad that the number of white people that have come to this event, because that's what we need. We need a mixture of people to understand the issues that we face." And then one girl came up to me. She's a white girl, and she came up to me after the event. She was like. I didn't really think racism was still a thing. I thought it was something that only existed in uh, world wars. And this is 2019, man. You know, we have social media. We have movements like Black Lives Matter. We have police brutality. We have so much going on. Like, all you need to do is open Twitter. I'm surprised that there is still an ignorance. How long were you officer for? A year, so... Yeah, yeah. I think there was a shift in that year. You think you made a change? So, I, my role was part-time. I was a full-time student. There's so much more I could have done, but I wasn't paid enough to. I was the lowest paid person in my SU. Which is problematic in its own sense. <laughs> Everything that I did, I can only say I hope, you know, because you never know. But I hope that it has sparked some sort of cultural awareness or change. What do you think about Wales in general? How do you think it, at the moment, is tackling issues around Islamophobia, issues around treatment of minorities? And... In terms of the cultural understanding of others, Wales in its right to be, is quite behind. Like South Wales, North Wales, West Wales, there's three totally different demographics of people in itself. South Wales is the place where you'll have events about cultural awareness, like it's quite diverse. Cardiff particularly, you know, Newport, Swansea. You don't have many Muslims. You do have Muslims that exist, you know, like in Aberystwyth, things like that, but you don't have as many Muslims living in other parts. But the people that do live there or sometimes visit there, they will get or, you know, like, I was on my way to Snowdon in a bus full of people. We stopped to ask directions to this farmer, and he goes, F off you, Pakis. And it was, wow. like, it was like to a bunch of Arab guys. He keeps, comes in the bus, and he said, oh, that's what you just said. And we were all laughing, because first of all, they weren't even Pakistani. It was hilarious. But second of all, we were like, right, on we go. <laughs> like, you know, I think the first step to any change is dialogue. But when you don't have that dialogue and that understanding between people from different cultures, I think it starts from there, and, and that's how you can address Islamophobia. I feel like out of most regions in the UK, Wales should be the people that empathise with minorities the most, because they are a minority in, the, in themselves. Welsh people face Welsh racism. I've heard Welsh people speak to me about the fact that they just for speaking Welsh, they'll get shut down by people, and, and I feel like they should empathise with the struggle of being someone who comes from a minority or lives as a minority. I think there's work to be done, but it's, it's difficult when it's not as widespread. The populations aren't as widespread in South Wales as it is in other parts of Wales, but I think there is a lot to do. It's going to take a lot of effort to get to those places. One key example 
was what I was with an organization of volunteer for men, Muslim engagement and development, that tackle Islamophobia. We did an event in Kafili for the first time, and it was an event called Ask a Muslim during Islamophobia Awareness Month, and we had like a panel of Muslims who came from different perspectives. And then we had a large audience of non-Muslims in the community centre, and that event was barged into by this guy who called everyone in the audience terrorist sympathizers, kids, families, everyone was there, right? This guy just barges in, he goes, you're all terrorists, and, you're, and then he points to the audience, he goes, you're terrorist sympathizers, and he gets so aggressive. I was like shaking, because I, I didn't know what this guy was going to do. I didn't know whether he was going to come in and punch someone in the face, who knows? It turns out he was like an ex-police officer, and before he came into the community centre, he wrote his details to the staff that worked there, saying, hey, there's all these weirdos over there. If you need any help to deal with them, I'll come to your rescue. I managed to stalk him on social media, like I managed to track him down. Great. And he was commenting on the event page of the community centre. And that really scared me because it's like a face to a troll. It was a really scary reality for me in the sense that these people, they don't just comment for the sake of it. Some of them actually put action into their words. That's so scary. Like the fact that he came out of his warm home on a rainy, cold night just to, to disrupt an event that was solely for the purpose of tackling misconceptions. People in the event were like, come and sit down then, you idiot. Like, if you don't like what these people are about, come and question them and come and sit down. And that was like Kafili, man. That was like not too far from Cardiff. And so there's work to be done, but it's just so scary. Like, I could have I could have passed that guy in the street. I would never have known that he would have held views against me freedom of speech and hate speech to me it's two very clear things i don't know why people get them mixed up it's gonna sound like a really silly question to stop into why do you love islam so much i'm a muslim i believe in allah and i believe in everything that islam stands for and i think just someone who solely believes in god and that muhammad is the messenger of god then that's enough a, a driver when you look at the world and you're like oh my gosh you turn on the news you look at it and it's quite bleak etc some of them are so grateful to be Muslim because as a Muslim, you know that there's a life after this that kind of makes it worth it living through everything that's happening. When you know, it's like my purpose in life. It's like my pledge, do you know what I mean? The reason why I, I, I'm fine with not doing things that I'm not supposed to do, it's something difficult to explain. It's so spiritual. It's more of a spiritual connection. That, like I don't have like a neat answer to give you as to why I love Islam so much, but it's literally because... I believe in Allah and I believe in the teachings in the Quran and I wouldn't be the person that I am today without my religion. It's probably why it's so difficult for me to be like, if I was a scholar and if I was someone that preached Islam, I would give you a very neat and nice perfect sentence as to all the reasons why I love Islam. But that answer is better because that's a genuine answer. Islam is something that I live and breathe every day. It's my way of life. It's through action. I have to do it through showing. And I don't do showing for other people. I do it as an expression of my identity. If you see anything that I put out on social media and it's about my religion or it's about my faith, it's just any other reason someone would post about their holiday. It's because it's what they're living at their time. It's something that they want to express and it's something that they feel so passionately about. And that is the same case with me. Like, as someone that's born and raised in Wales, in the UK, I'm still understanding the dual identities that I have and not even the dual, like the triple identities that I have as a Muslim, as someone that's Pakistani, as someone that's British as well. So navigating those identities and through art and through creativity, I'm understanding and trying to reconnect with 
the culture that I haven't been very con- my other culture you know the, the side that I haven't been very connected with and that faith included feeling of creative is so hard because your work is motivated by the things that hit you the most for me I feel like any creative piece of content that I put out whether it's writing or whether it's you know any, anything anything that I put out it literally has to come from the heart and when you're still defining your identities and your place within your different identities that you're navigating if you don't know those identities then it's very difficult to put that part into the work that you need to share it with everyone else so i don't know that's i think yeah I think that's kind of like where i'm at and that's the end of another episode Episode 7 was recorded, hosted, and edited by me, Jafar Iqbal. The podcast has been produced by Shane Nichols, who also provided sound support. Thank you to the Wells Millennium Centre for giving us a space to record, and thanks to Maria for her time. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening. Please do get in touch with us on social media if you'd like to, and tell us what you think. You can find us at critic underscore speak on Twitter, critically.speaking on Instagram, and you can search for the Critically Speaking Facebook page. Now, our next episode will be the final one of the season, and I hope you'll be back with us for it. But until then, thank you, dioch, and goodbye.